Paul, please could you tell us about your background and your current role? Uh, yes, I am a um, functional and neuromodulation neurosurgeon. I've been practicing neuromodulation uh, for the past 20 years uh, at New York University, uh, Cleveland Clinic, and The Ohio State University at the three institutions. And uh, my current role is the um, director of the Neurological Institute here at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. And um, also, I am the director of the Center for Neuromodulation. And um, I manage the uh, Neurological Institute with respect to the uh, psychiatric uh, hospital, the uh, brain and spine hospital, and the rehab hospital, as well as the, um, the overall research uh, mission and the coordination of all the activities of the uh, 200 plus faculty we have for the neurosciences across uh, departments of neurology and neurosurgery and uh, psychiatry and behavioral health. Uh, physical medicine, rehabilitation, and um, neurosciences. And my um, uh, specialties in neuromodulation, so I also um, perform uh, neuromodulation uh, surgeries as well as uh, neuromodulation research specifically. It's a very busy role then. And so can you tell us how you became uh, interested in neuromodulation and particularly deep brain stimulation? Oh, yes. Uh, when I was at um, training, undergoing my neurosurgical residency training at New York University uh, in New York, um, I uh, started uh, becoming interested in brain imaging. And specifically, uh, it was in early 90s, and um, functional brain imaging such as functional MRIs, PET scanner, and also magnetoencephalography, MEG, uh, whereby you're able to um, um, map out the neural circuitry in the brain involved, for example, for movements, uh, for sensation, uh, for behavior and cognition. And uh, that really sparked my interest in um, uh, functional neurosurgery or neuromodulation because uh, it's really uh, restorative neurosurgery. Um, and um, it takes individuals, for example, who have severe Parkinson's disease or tremor or dystonia or chronic pain or other severe and um, medication intractable uh, psychiatric and behavioral conditions and he can um, apply surgical techniques uh, and apply um, neurological pacemakers and other targeted drug delivery and uh, electrical delivery to improve the, um, the function of uh, a very large number of patients. And, the um, background in imaging and understanding the neural circuitry and the physiology of the brain um, really um, uh, was important for me because um, without those fundamental better understanding of the anatomy and the physiology and the function of the brain and the um, deficits that occur in disease, um, you're not going to be able to help patients. So um, those were important um, fundamentals that I was focusing on research during my training in New York and that led to my interest in neuromodulation and subsequently doing um, specialization fellowships uh, at University of Toronto and uh, a couple of brief stints in Europe and in France and also in um, uh, Sweden. Great. And so what would you say a typical day looks like for you if there is such a thing? A typical day, um, well, it usually um, involves um, patient care activities 
and um, surgeries, uh, typically deep brain stimulation surgeries that we do, or uh, peripheral nerve or spinal cord stimulation surgeries, or um, targeted infusion pump and delivery. So it involves patient care with surgeries, um, as well as seeing patients in the clinic. Um, I also have uh, a research team, and um, we're involved in, in a whole range of research looking at new clinical applications of deep brain stimulation and other um, neuromodulation applications. So I meet with a research team, we review data, and uh, we plan out experiments. Um, I also have an administrative role uh, in my capacity as the director of Neurological Institute. So I um, interact with um, various um, psychiatry colleagues and neurology and uh, neurosurgery rehabilitation neuroscience colleagues. And um, so it can involve looking at um, hospital performance, um, safety, quality, um, as well as um, faculty recruitment um, and um, research broadly for the uh, university and the hospital and the departments, but also my own specific focus area of neuromodulation. So it depends, but uh, many things are blending together from early in the morning to late in the evening. Mm. And so you mentioned there that um, you're involved sort of in the clinical side of things and also in research and the development of new clinical treatments. So a lot of us might uh, know of neuromodulation being used for conditions such as Parkinson's um, or chronic pain, but you've also used it to treat a whole wealth of conditions. Can you tell us a bit more about um, your work and research and how neuromodulation can be harnessed to treat what could be called perhaps alternative conditions such as obesity, addiction, and migraine? Right. So um, the most common application uh, of neuromodulation in the brain we call deep brain stimulation, which is basically brain pacemakers that are used um, to treat advanced and medication uh, intractable Parkinson's disease or essential tremor dystonia. And those are the most common. There are more than 150,000 patients worldwide who have had uh, deep brain stimulation implants. And uh, it really started 30 years ago, Professor Benabit in France, who started doing this over 30 years ago plus. And um, um, subsequently, that led to um, the Food and Drug Administration approval in the U.S. for these therapies and also CE mark and European approvals for this, this uh, deep brain stimulation technology. And as a result of the um, uh, rapid applications and large numbers in Parkinson's disease and tremor and dystonia and success and safety, um, our team and others across the world started exploring uh, applications in, for other conditions uh, using deep brain stimulation. And the advantage of it is that deep brain stimulation is uh, reversible, so you can turn it off and you're back to where you started with and you can adjust it <coughs> Excuse me, over time whereby um, um, the neurologist or psychiatrist or the rehab physician or team can adjust the uh, deep brain stimulation to optimize it for an individual patient's need. So we started um, in the late 90s and early 2000 looking at applications with colleagues uh, in Europe and across the U.S. for uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, and this is this is patients who have severe obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD who have had um, numerous attempts at medications and cognitive behavioral therapy and outpatient and inpatient behavioral therapy and many other um, approaches and have failed that are very disabled. 
also a very small population of those with severe obsessive compulsive disorder. And we initiated uh, pilot uh, early stage clinical trials and then subsequently larger stage clinical trials that led to the approval of uh, deep brain stimulation in the U.S. under the humanitarian device exemption format for the FDA for OCD and also CE mark approval in Europe for OCD. Subsequently, we looked at um, the um, applications of deep brain stimulation for um, depression. And uh, I should add the targets in the brain where these implants um, are placed. The targets are um, uh, different locations. For example, for somebody who has an essential tremor, we implant devices in the, in the thalamus, and specifically within the thalamus in the brain, in the motor nucleus of the thalamus. Um, for Parkinson's, we go into the subthalamic nucleus or globus pallidus internus. For dystonia, we go into the globus pallidus internus. For obsessive compulsive disorder, we go into the uh, internal capsule and um, ventral striatum or nucleus accumbens. For depression, there's a target of um, subgenial cingulate matter, uh, area 25, or uh, the ventral capsule, ventral striatum, or dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. So basically, you have different uh, parts of the brain and the surface cortex in the brain or deep in the brain that are um, nodes, if you will, or hubs that um, can be electrically modulated with the pacemaker. Um, and um, they are the uh, locations that um, are implicated in the um, uh, disease process. And that's what the deep brain stimulation is aimed to um, improve the outcomes from the disease. So um, the, the targets in the brain come as a result of decades of understanding the anatomy and physiology of the brain. And then we apply it based on um, deep brain stimulation technology. You can go into the thalamus or the subthalamic nucleus or the nucleus accumbens, all of them being a few millimeters away from each other. And um, each of these new applications, whether it's for obsessive compulsive disorder or depression or exploration that's being used for uh, addictions or obesity, um, Tourette's, and other conditions, um, it, it employs a large team, um, ethics approvals, institutional review board approvals, uh, food and drug administration approvals, and protocols that are put together uh, by teams of experts, not just neurosurgeons, uh, the neurosurgeons, the neurologists, the psychiatrists, the psychologists, ethicists, and a um, whole range of people that sit down together and first um, identify patient population and why would they be candidates for deep brain stimulation is brain surgery after all so it's not for everybody but I would say for 10% of patients who have this con uh, in each of the areas we discussed who may over time become refractory or intractable to the best treatments approaches and as a result they don't have many options and they're getting worse in their day-to-day -day functioning and quality of life and that's when deep brain stimulation becomes an option. So every new application requires uh, months, if not years, of preparation and protocol developments and approvals. So I want to emphasize that it's, it's a very tedious process that requires a lot of um, uh, regulatory and other approvals and um, teams taking care of patients. It's not just one, one individual or, or surgeon. Mm -hmm. so
I guess you've touched on it, but what would you say are the main challenges um, faced in both developing new techniques and performing these surgeries themselves? Well, I think the most important is, is a patient need and uh, patients, uh, we want to help patients uh, the best way we can. So um, if there are patients, populations who have um, uh, tried the, the traditional approaches, whether it's behavioral therapies for addictions or medications or chronic pain, try medications or physical therapy or all the other standard measurements and approaches that we have, um, we want to make sure that surgery is only attempted in those who have had reasonable attempts at the traditional um, therapeutic uh, strategies and uh, once they have failed and the patients are getting worse, then I think surgery becomes an option. And uh, safety is the most important thing for us. We want to make sure, number one, we want to do an initial pilot study to make sure there's a safety profile is good for the patients. And um, the safety profile of deep brain stimulation, it's excellent for over 30 years, um, 150,000 patients. So um, it is still brain surgery, so we want to make sure that the safety is there for this new target, for example, if you're looking at for obesity or addiction. And then um, after that, um, you, you want to uh, make sure that, that the study is designed well, that over time you're able to get uh, benefit and efficacy or measure of that, and to hopefully make that a routine um, kind of a, a approach as an alternative for those individuals who have um, failed traditional treatments. Um, I was referring to just right now the deep brain stimulation, and we talked about the behavioral conditions, um, for example, depression that was explored or obsessive compulsive disorder. There are a number of studies worldwide, nothing really with a randomized controlled trial at this point for addictions, obesity, and um, Tourette's, and um, stroke, and a whole range of other conditions, as well as Alzheimer's disease. So really the, the gold standard, if you will, right now are deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's, tremor and dystonia, and obsessive compulsive disorder. And then everything else from depression to addictions to obesity um, to severe um, uh, stroke uh, to um, Tourette's um, and um, other conditions that deep brain stimulation has been explored for, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder and others. These are all early stage clinical trials and there's no um, randomized controlled trials that has shown benefits. So we're still at an early stage of determining the um, overall utility of deep brain stimulation for these conditions, but a lot of research is ongoing. And at the same time, outside the brain, there's a lot of activity going on, so there's a much broader and larger number of neurostimulation or neurological pacemakers, if you will, for uh, peripheral nerves to treat a whole range of conditions of chronic pain. And spinal cord stimulators for chronic pain, they're being used to treat intractable angina. It's being used to treat urinary incontinence and fecal incontinence, very large number of um, procedures performed each year for urinary incontinence. Uh, peripheral nerve stimulation is also being explored with um, stimulation of the nerves uh, that um, are impacting the function of different body organs, for example, for heart, looking at arrhythmias and heart failure, gastrointestinal disorders, and um, 
immune and endocrine dysfunction. So there's a lot of activity in the world of neuromodulation looking at organ-based neuromodulation, how you can modulate the nervous system input into each organ and help improve the function of that organ and disease. So a much bigger um, exploration is going on, working with cardiologists, working with gastroenterologists, um, neurologists, gynecologists, um, immune specialists, uh, rheumatoid arthritis folks. So there's a lot of activity with neuromodulation, and the field is dramatically growing in my 20 years that I've been uh, practicing it, and it's great to see it evolve over time. We've also done studies with um, cluster headaches and migraine headaches using a microstimulator device of the sphenopalatine ganglion. Um, that basically uses an external cell phone-like device. And um, these are the microstimulators that are implanted in the cheek, for example, into the sphenopalatine ganglion that are activated externally with a handheld uh, cell phone-like device. When the patient starts experiencing the pain, they use this device to treat their cluster pain, and the studies are ongoing for migraine. So it's a very... Uh, broad uh, scope of application of neuromodulation for many, many conditions right now. And so looking ahead, where do you hope to see the field in, say, 10 years from now? So, well, uh, I think the field will, will evolve and fundamentally um, advances and discoveries in neuroscience and helping us understand the, um, the neural circuitry or the networks involved in the brain and nervous system that are implicated in different diseases. The better we can understand the fundamentals, uh, the more we can intervene and um, help help patients with this technology. I think the future for the neuromodulation is newer targets, newer indications as we learn more about the diseases. Also, the technology is evolving rapidly for uh, neuromodulation. So, um, as as opposed to the um, initial deep brain stimulation systems, for example, that are we call open loop. They just deliver the therapy and you set the uh, stimulation frequency and the pulse width and the intensity, and then that delivers the, uh, the, the, the therapy. The newer systems emerging in 10 years will be much more common are closed loop systems. So in the same way as a heart pacemaker or heart device detects the activity of the heart, the electrical activity heart, and only if it needs, it delivers pacing. Um, the same general concept is being applied in the brain. Obviously, it's much more sophisticated in the brain and the nervous system. But, for example, there's an FDA-approved system called the Neuropace that detects epileptic activity and treats the epilepsy uh, in a closed-loop fashion. The same is ongoing for Parkinson's disease where there are certain um, physiological states in the brain um, called beta-gamma banding, if you will, uh, and they are able to be detected by the implant and sensed, and the implant senses these different physiological electrical signatures, which mean um, a therapeutic response or a lack of response. So by sensing these physiological signatures deep in the brain, you can adjust your therapy and um, becomes a closed-loop uh, therapeutic approach. So that will become more common for Parkinson's and for tremor and for chronic pain and uh, for epilepsy is already being utilized. So I would say closed-loop applications will become more routine in 10 years from now. The implants will become smaller and smaller. We're evolving to what, what's being called micro-stimulators or tiny injectable implants that are injected and externally um, uh, 
interrogated and externally activated with cell phone-like devices. So um, that's also evolving uh, very rapidly. So an evolution in the targets in the brain and the nervous system that are contributing to the disease so we can know what those areas are, we can target them and modulate them to improve function. There's an evolution in the technology of the devices, smaller, minimally invasive, um, injectable, percutaneous approaches that can be activated externally, and then closed loop or feedback systems where they have a sensing component uh, and a processing component, an algorithm that tells you, okay, this is a uh, this needs a treatment or this does not need a treatment, and treat and then deliver the the treatment. So that's where um, the field is evolving, as well as micro injectables or polymers that deliver uh, drugs uh, locally and targeted delivery of drugs um, into the brain instead of systemic delivery that you take with a pill in your mouth or intravenously. So these are targeted delivery into specific organs or nerves or the target region that is electrically or chemically malfunctioning. And um, that that's the general sense of where the technology is evolving. It's also moving outside of implant devices. There's a lot of activity going on with transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS, so external magnets that are used to deliver magnetic pulses that generate or modulate electrical signals in the brain. There's also transcranial direct current stimulation. These are external devices that modulate the brain. They're more rougher uh, than deep brain stimulation, but the advantage of them is that they are non-invasive. And uh, so it can be done, you come into clinic and the magnetic stimulation can be used. It's FDA approved, for example, in the U.S. for the treatment of depression and it's being explored for chronic pain, addiction, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorders, and a whole range of other conditions. So um, a lot of activity going on in neuromodulation. I remember our meetings um, that we used to run 20 years ago, we had like 100, 150 people, and now our national meetings have over 2,000 people. So there's a lot of growth in this field. Yeah, definitely. It's a massively increasing field and sort of exciting to watch. Yes. So now looking at um, your career, so as well as performing hundreds of life-changing surgeries and developing new treatments, you've also acted as president of a number of societies, won prestigious awards, and also presented your work to the president of the United States. So with such an esteemed career so far, what would you say has been your highlight? You know, I think... Um being part of a, a broader teams that uh, we can impact patient care. So I'm um, really uh, in the 90s being part of a multi-specialty uh, team that uh, were able to um, perform deep brain stimulation surgery for Parkinson's. At that time, it was only a handful of patients in the mid-90s that were being done worldwide. So for me, um, having the opportunity to work as part of um, multi-specialty teams to um, help patients. And the same thing happened early 2000, working with teams um, across the world, um, looking at obsessive compulsive disorder or depression, um, now looking at uh, management of, for example, stroke or addictions, uh, working with a team that we did last um, a few years uh, in an area called the brain-computer interface where we're able to um, implant a microchip in the brain and allow a quadriplegic um, to move his arm by just thinking about movements. Uh, it's an area called brain-computer interface. So um, it's, it's been a, a very gratifying for myself to participate as, as a member of the team in these uh, various um, 
initiatives where we can help people with tremor or movement disorders or psychiatric disorders or uh, other uh, physical, cognitive, and behavioral disabilities using technology of neuromodulation. So um, that has been the most gratifying. I mean, in the clinic, um, uh, basically, we see a patient earlier today where um, the patient said that my life has been changed with a brain implant, with a Parkinson's. So the patient was not able to um, go out and interact um, as a grandfather and could not interact uh, with, with his um, uh, grandchildren and go out and play with them and was afraid to go outside uh, or go out to get a bite to eat in restaurants because he was shaking and had difficulty doing the basic activities. And now he says he's able to play golf and enjoy life. So those are um, what are very gratifying for myself and our team. Wonderful, and thank you very much for joining us today and telling us about your work. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast from NeuroCentral. You can find more podcasts, plus the latest news, free journal articles, interviews and opinion pieces from across neurology and neuroscience at www.neuro-central.com.